0: Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As many longtime listeners of our show know, each and every week, a guest and I discuss the weekly Torah portion. This week, we read a double portion. Two portions are assigned to the reading. So I wanted to spend a moment explaining why that would be. The Torah, the five books of Moses, is split into 54 Torah portions, or in Hebrew, parashiot. We usually read one Torah portion each Shabbat. However, there are 14 parashiot portions that, depending on the year, can potentially be paired together so two Torah portions would be read on that Shabbat. This week, we read the last two Torah portions of Exodus, Vayikahel and Pikudei. Now, why do we read two Torah portions? The basic issue is that although we split the Torah, the five books of Moses, into 54 portions, a regular Jewish year has 353 to 355 days. That leaves us with 50 to 51 Shabbatot, on which to read the Torah portion. Additionally, when a Jewish holiday coincides with Shabbat, we read a special holiday reading instead of the weekly Torah portion. This leaves us with a maximum of 48 and sometimes fewer weeks in a regular year on which to read 54 Torah portions. In order to reconcile the weekly cycle of parashiot with the number of Shabbat tot available, we need to double up some of the parashiot. In addition, in a Jewish leap year we add an extra month consisting of 30 days which includes four more shabatot or five depending on the day of the week the new month starts this thus in a leap year we have a lot fewer double torah portions this year we have a maximum number of double portions and so as i said We are reading a double portion from Exodus 35 through Exodus 40, the conclusion of the second book of the Torah, Exodus, or in Hebrew, Shemot. Let me give you a synopsis of this Torah portion. Moses assembles the people of Israel and reiterates to them the commandment to observe the Shabbat. He then conveys God's instructions regarding the making of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and the people donate the required materials in abundance, bringing gold and silver and copper and blue, purple, and red-dyed wool. The Torah continues to say they brought goat hair, spun linen, animal skins. Moses has to tell them to stop giving. A team of wise-hearted, Artisans make the Mishkan and its furnishings as detailed in the previous three Torah portions. We then go on to speak about the roof covering and all the specifics related to the completion of the sanctuary. The Mishkan is completed and all its components are brought to Moses, who erects it and anoints it with holy ointing oil and initiates Aaron and his sons, four sons, into the priesthood. The Torah portion concludes in a very dramatic way. A cloud appears over the Mishkan, the tabernacle, signifying the divine presence that has come to dwell within it. This week's guest is Rabbi Stephen Bob. Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation Eitz Chaim in Lombard, Illinois. Rabbi Bob is the author of a book entitled Jonah and the Meaning of Our Lives, a translation and a commentary on the book of Jonah. Rabbi Stephen Bob, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. It's good to be with you again. Well, it is a pleasure to hear your voice And uh, as our listeners know, whenever you offer words of Torah, both they and I are enlightened. (laughs) Now, I know that you wanted to start somewhere at the end of the portion, of the double portion.
1: As in most Torah portions, there's lots of possible verses to talk about.
0: Uh, For this conversation, I've picked out just a few words. That is terrific. So as I indicated in my, uh, synopsis, the book of Exodus concludes with the tabernacle work having been set, uh, completed. And then we find the concluding, what you and I might call paragraph, <laughs> but really is a series of, uh, Verses, beginning with chapter 40, uh, verse 33. Um, And he set up the enclosure around the tabernacle and the altar and put up the screen for the gate of the enclosure, where suggesting that this is Moses. And then the concluding part of verse 33 When Moses had finished the work, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the presence of God filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the presence of God filled the tabernacle. When the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on their various journeys But if the cloud did not lift, they would not set out until such time as it did lift. The book of Exodus then concludes, for over the tabernacle, a cloud of God rested by day and fire would appear in it by night in the view of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. It's certainly a powerful narrative, but in particular, you were struck by the latter part of verse 33.
1: Right. So most often when we look at these verses, we would talk about the presence of God settling in the tabernacle. But one of the, for me, the enjoyable parts of reading the text is each time I read the text, different words catch my attention. And this week, the words that catch my attention are, and Moses completed the work. Now, This sounds like a fine way to describe what is going on here in chapter 40. The book of Exodus is coming to an end, and Moses completed the work of building the tabernacle. It sounds fine. But the question that I have, what does it mean that Moses completed the work? Did Moses actually do any of the work with his own two hands? Did Moses personally build the tabernacle? You know, in Genesis, we read that Noah built the ark. And there we would understand that Noah actually built the ark with his own two hands. But here, do we think that Moses built the tabernacle with his own two hands? So this got
0: me thinking. So, when if I st- can just uh, clarify for the listeners. Sure. Sure. Um, it stands out as an unusual few words because the Torah portion and the three before it are so uh, directly uh, uh, directive about the work being completed under the direction of Bitzalel and his assistants. And the Torah itself seems to suggest that Moses was a bystander in this work, and so uh, Rabbi has noted for us what was he finishing? You know, so you no, know, my friend, that's exactly my
1: question. Why <laughs> why does it say Moses finished the work? It should say Btzalel finished the work, or Btzalel and a holy av, or Bitzalel and a holy av and some others. Um, lots of people were involved in this project, but it doesn't say Moses and many people finished the work or Moses supervised. So Moses is getting the credit for the work done by lots and lots of people. You know, I think that too often on all sorts of projects, the person who supervises gets the credit, and the people who do the actual work are ignored. Now, thinking about this caused me to think about one of my favorite obscure characters in the Hebrew Bible. Obscure characters? Oh, really obscure characters. Here, I'll say his name. And I would bet you have never heard of him. His name, his name is Evid Ben Yonatan. Evid the son of Yonatan.
0: So if he didn't play ball for the Chicago Cubs, I have not a great deal of familiarity with him. So when I first learned of him, I first read of him,
1: I was struck by his name, which I'll explain why in a minute. And I began asking people, now I teach um, at Wheaton College, which is is an evangelical college here in the suburbs of Chicago, and the students are very focused on Bible. I happened, the day that I read about him, I was speaking to a schedule to speak to two Wheaton College Bible classes, and the students there know the Bible very, very well. And I asked the students in both classes and the professor, who's a leading Bible scholar, about Eved Ben Yonatan, no one had ever heard him heard of him. And then I asked the the rabbis of Chicago on a Facebook page, no one had ever heard of him. Now I'll tell you who he is. Now, in the book of Ezra, which I happen to be doing scholarly work on these days, um, in chapter eight of the book of Ezra, it describes Ezra coming up to Jerusalem, and it lists the people. Who go up to Jerusalem with Ezra. And one of them is Evid ben Yonatan. And it's the only time he's mentioned in the entire Hebrew
0: Bible. So I just want to pause for one moment and clarify for any of our listeners about what is the book of Ezra, um, which is, as you suggested, Um, a fairly significant book in not the Torah, but in what we call the Tanakh, the collection of other writings that are considered sacred to the Jewish people. So perhaps you can explain to the listeners what exactly is the Book of Ezra.
1: Well, I'm happy you say nice things about the Book of Ezra. People, even people who read the Bible, do not often read the Book of Ezra. So the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, which are often thought of together, describe the return from the Babylonian exile. At the end of 2 Kings, we read of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Babylonian ruler Nebuchadnezzar, and the people are carried off into exile and remain in exile for 50 years. The book of Ezra begins with the conquest of Babylonia by Cyrus the Great of Persia. And then Cyrus the Great issues a decree that the people can return. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah describe the return from exile and the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, what we usually call the second temple. And it describes the waves of people returning to Jerusalem and the work that's involved in rebuilding the temple and rebuilding Jerusalem and other issues that arise as a result of that process.
0: And in in many ways, it's a very important book, uh, to describe the power that returning to Jerusalem has for those who had been in exile. And there are many, uh, Important behaviors associated with the book of Ezra, including reading the Torah.
1: Yeah, that is precisely what really drew me to the book of Ezra. And that was actually in chapter eight of Nehemiah, there's the first public reading of the Torah. And that is what uh, draws me to the importance of those two books. And I think that in some ways, Judaism as we know it begins there in chapter eight of Nehemiah. Now, that's the famous part of the book of Nehemiah. This list of people returning with Ezra is not famous. And Evid ben Yonatan is not a famous person. He's mentioned only one time. He, <laughs> I think we would use the term extra to describe <laughs> Evid ben Yonatan. Now, what I love about him is his name. Now, Yonatan is a fine Hebrew name. It's generally translated as Jonathan. Other, there's other people in the Hebrew Babel, other people in the Hebrew Bible named Yonatan. Evid is a bizarre name. Evid means slave or worker. So on Passover we say Avadim Hayinu. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. The medieval Bible commentator Rashi in his commentary to Ezra on this verse. He comments on the Evid Ben Yonatan name and Rashi's comment is this was his name.
0: So for those who uh, are looking it up, Rashi is really saying, I know you're confused, but this was his name. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Now, my
1: last name is Bob, B O B. And people don't believe me that it's my last name. More than once, people have said to me, it can't be your last name. So when Rashi says, this was his name, I have a personal identification with Rashi's comments. Because of very often I have to say, yes, this is
0: my name. <laughs> right? In spite of the fact that it doesn't sound like a Uh, what should we call, last name.
1: Right. Uh, Right.
0: Now, I
1: imagined that he is called Evid because he was a worker. I imagine that we should see him as somebody who worked with his hands, that he's Evid because he is one of the people who actually rebuilt the temple. Evid might even be a nickname,
0: um, it's like, it's like Bob the Builder. And, <laughs> and do you not. think there's any textual support for that? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. It's all it's right not. to have a midrash.
1: It's me thinking about why his why his name might be Evid. I can't prove it. Okay. Um, no. The Bible doesn't tell us about what specific role he played in rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, but we know that big projects require the work of regular people. Um, so um, something I'll think of a big project, the Hoover Dam. I'm sure there's big Canadian projects too, but I'm not as familiar with them.
0: don't know, no, no, but I think the listeners get it. <laughs> uh, nothing gets built. Uh, simply by those who oversee the building.
1: Right. So if you, one visits the Hoover Dam or the Eiffel Tower or any such thing, we hear about the plans and how it was built, but rarely is there a list of the people who actually built it.
0: Now that yeah, I did, think that's probably true in both countries.
1: Right. So it's, so I like the name of Ebed Ben-Yonatan because he really, um, he, we can imagine that he was one of the actual builders. He is, <laughs> He's not simply an extra in this list in Ezra, but he's one of the people who actually um, built the temple in Jerusalem. I don't know who built the Hoover Dam, but I can imagine that Ebed Ben-Yonatan built the temple in Jerusalem. We talk about, I can talk about who built the state of Israel. So I can say, well, David Ben-Gurion is the founding prime minister of the state of Israel. But I know there were people who played small, unknown people who played small roles. So there's a man named, a relative of ours named Moshe Blaustein. Moshe Blaustein moved from Germany to Israel in 1929 when it was not a very built-up country. He was a founding member of a kibbutz named Givat Brenner, which went on to be the biggest kibbutz in Israel. And when he first got there in 1929, the British were in the control of the land of Israel, and Uncle Moshe built roads. So he built the road from Jericho to the Dead Sea. Now, when I drive on that road today, I'm sure it's been repaved since 1929. But I know the first road was built by great uncle Moshe. And he lived on the kibbutz. He worked in the orange grove. He was a lively fellow. I met him only when he was an older man. But uncle Moshe once said to me, he held out his hands and said, these hands built the state of Israel.
0: Thinking so, about we have Moshe. a kind of metaphoric notion of who is a builder. Right, yes.
1: You know, so, Uncle Moshe is a builder. Evid Ben Yonatan is a builder. And I think more importantly, if we ask ourselves, in what way are we builders? In, in our congregations, in our communities, we're all part of bigger projects. And I can certainly speak for myself. When I feel that I'm part of a bigger project, I feel strengthened. I want to be part of a team. Um, when my son, who's now an adult, but when he was a teenager, he was on lots of sports teams. And the coaches always had metaphors. <laughs> you know, we're all a brick in the wall. I mean, each season they had a different metaphor, but it was the same idea all the time that we're all individually part of something larger and that we all contribute something to the larger project. Uh, Too much in Western culture, it's I've got to be me. But I think the real message should be I've got to be we, that we want to be part of something larger, whether it's a community effort, a political effort, a congregational effort, I always feel strengthened when I'm working together with other people. The Bible says that Moses completed the tabernacle, but we should understand it wasn't Moses alone. He was the leader of a big team. I don't know that they had fine
0: uniforms like the Blue Jays or the Cubs, but... But nonetheless... Nonetheless, uh, yes. He is um, identified... As not just the supervisor, but you're suggesting that he's considered an important aspect of this project. Uh, and so the Torah wants us to think about him as a hands-on guy. I think that's what you're suggesting. He's, he's a representative of the larger group. Good.
1: Good. You oh, um, <laughs> And and when we work together, we can all be part of the larger group and we can look at our own hands and say, you know, these hands did this and these hands did that. I enjoy working with my hands. I like to build things from wood and I can, the chair I'm sitting on, I built the desk I'm sitting at, I built, I'm going to say, literally my hands built these things. But I know my hands have been part of much larger projects than simply pieces of furniture. And sometimes other people get credits for what I played a part in. And that's fine. I'm happy to play a part in the larger project.
0: So, Rabbi, I'm wondering, um, it's somewhat easy to follow your interpretation and the message of the interpretation that as a team, we're all stronger than as individuals. But I'm wondering, as you think, Think through the uh, interpretation of and meaning of this verse, what do you think the torah's intent was in uh, singling out Moses this way at the conclusion of the book of Exodus? Uh, <laughs> so,
1: the The Torah is very big on Moses. So clearly, Moses is the person who has a unique relationship with God. Moses is chosen as a baby. Moses doesn't earn his special relationship with God. Moses gets put in the basket as an infant, and he's already in relationship with God from the very beginning of his life. Moses gets to talk with God in a way that nobody else gets to talk with God. and. Moses becomes the people's representative to God, and God's representative to the people. Uh, so uh, Moses is clearly an extraordinary human being, um, <clears throat> but he's a but as of all people, he's a limited. But he is the connection between limited human beings and unlimited God, and here. There is the construction of the tabernacle, which provides a place for people to approach God. So today, we have our churches and synagogues as places where we can approach God. During this year of pandemic, we've been in exile from our houses of worship mostly. Um, in the coming months, we hope to return from exile and to renew our days as of old. <laughs> I think
0: that's uh, a nice way to use the phrase. Um, so in speaking of Moses as this um, essential character in the five books, uh, which carry his name, the five books of Moses, um, giving him this uh, honor at the closing of the book of Exodus, um, before we begin the book of Leviticus, which is about the priesthood, might we find any um, intentionality about leaving Moses in such a position of honor before the Torah switches to the descendants of his brother? Or is it just accidental?
1: <laughs> oh, I love that. I hadn't thought of that, but I think that's a, it's a fine way of thinking of it. So here in Exodus, we read over and over again, that God speaks to Moses. In Leviticus, we'll read that God speaks to Moses and Aaron. So the it's the end of one book and the beginning of the next, and the relationship with God shifts in the book of Leviticus, certainly. That there Aaron comes on stage in a very full way and becomes a partner again with Moses. And we hear about Aaron himself, and about the tasks that will, happen, will be assigned to the descendants of Aaron to represent the people, each generation of the people, in bringing sacrifices for, on behalf of the people to God.
0: Well, I want to thank my guests this morning, Rabbi Steve and Bob of uh, Illinois, Uh, Rabbi Emeritus of Eitz Chaim Congregation in Lombard, Illinois, for offering us a unique look at biblical exegesis and how we can use one verse, one half a verse, to really see a message um, applicable to ourselves. You can find a podcast of this morning's show on iTunes or on the chri.ca website for Jewish faith and Jewish facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and have a good day.